Thank you, as always, for bringing your Bibles. Uh, it is good when a church brings their Bible and is ready to study because the Lord speaks through His Word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the what? Tell me. Word of God. So the way our faith is built, the way we're strengthened is by listening to the Word. And that's been the series we've been in about listening to the Lord, what it's like to discern His voice and hear Him. You know, when I was um, growing up, I used to love to watch Looney Tunes on Saturday mornings. How many people love Looney Tunes? Roadrunner and Coyote and Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. Daffy Duck was always my favorite because he was so stressed. He just, I just related to Daffy Duck in some way. But that was back in the days of, of three channels and no remote controls. You remember that? We used to call them the dark ages. It seems like, as I was thinking about this, it seems like we're like 400 years old. You had to, you kids, you had to, you had to get up and you had to walk across the room and you had to actually manually turn the dial on the set. And if you wanted UHF, you remember UHF? How many remember UHF? Remember? You had to kind of, it, like, it was like AM radio. You had to kind of just dial in. There was nothing digital about UHF. That was what we grew up with, most of us. There weren't DVRs, there wasn't Netflix, There's, there really, back then you couldn't get the whole Looney Tunes series on, on video cassette. If you weren't sitting in front of the 4,000 pound box in your den with the antenna at 9 o'clock on Saturday morning, you didn't see Looney Tunes. They didn't replay it on Cartoon Network later, you had to wait until the next Saturday. It's unbelievable that we turned out normal, isn't it? I'm just stunned some days that I've gotten to 50 and I'm still halfway sane. Well, anyway, back in the, back in the days of Looney Tunes, um, sometimes the cartoons would, would represent temptation. And they would have an angel on one shoulder and they'd have a little demon on the other. You remember that? And the, and the angel and the demon would, would kind of argue and try to talk to the person. And, and I always wondered about the theology of that. Especially because usually the demon would, would beat up the angel or he'd make him disappear in some way. And the angel would always be really wimpy. Oh, come on now. You need to not do that. And the, the, the demon would be portrayed as really cool and, and edgy. I don't know about the theology of that. But, but the point that the cartoonists were making is that we hear different spiritual voices. That there are different influences, different voices that we hear uh, in terms of the spiritual battle that's going on around us. And, and over the last few weeks, we've been studying how to discern the voice of the Lord. How to know the voice of the Lord. As, as His children, as His sheep, so to speak, we are told that we recognize the voice of the shepherd. That we know the Master's voice. But we also know that the enemy is very deceptive and that he's very cunning. And that he uh, tries to trick us. So we want to learn how to uh, discern the voice of the Lord, and how to obey Him uh, and be faithful in that once we hear it. Now, last week, remember, we looked at Noah and Abram. And we talked about um, some of the benefits of having our faith stretched, even though sometimes having our faith stretched seems a little daunting and intimidating. Um, but having our faith stretched isn't always a negative. And we tried to understand last week that, that many times when our faith gets pulled out like that, it's a powerful way to understand the provision of God. And that ends up being a, a positive and wonderful thing in terms of our maturation. Uh, because even when the plan of God seems kind of illogical and outlandish to us, it's still His plan. 
and his ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. So even if we don't understand what's going on, or we're not aware of how this is going to play out, we are still called to trust him completely. God never says, trust only what you understand. He says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In other words, faith lives in the unknown. Faith lives in the uncertain. That's why it's so hard. If everything was to trust what we can see tangibly, that wouldn't be a problem. Faith is a challenge because we have to trust God for what only he knows. Now, that was a lesson that God kept impressing upon Abram. And we're going to study him again this morning uh, in Genesis chapter 15 to 18 because um, this, was, this was something that God was clearly teaching to Abram and Sarai. And really, we're going to focus this morning on her because she really struggled with this principle. And as she struggled with trusting the Lord, it had a degenerative effect on Abram's faith. When we're around people that are faithless, it will usually negatively impact our faith. When we're around people that don't live, eat, and breathe to trust the Lord and to love the Lord and to serve the Lord, it will impact us negatively. It is rare, and I mean rare, that we will offset those voices and by a result of being around them, actually become stronger in our conviction. More often than not, almost always, almost without exception, when we're around people that are dragging us down, we're going to get dragged down. But if we keep associating with, with people who love the Lord and people who are strong in their faith, it will build our faith and it will embolden our conviction. That's the strength of this room this morning. That's why this room is so powerful, because we can stand together and raise our hand, hands and say, Mighty Savior, lifted high, King forever, Jesus Christ, ground in glory, raised to life, the same power lives in us. We can sing that together as an affirmation, not only of our love and trust in the Lord, but of our encouragement to each other. Whatever you deal with this week, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you as a believer. That same power is our confidence and our hope and our encouragement. And there's no way, I don't think, that we can sing that song from our heart and get discouraged as we sing that together, as I close my eyes and listen to the voices in this room, that built my faith more, that, that strengthened me more, that encouraged me more in, in terms of my love for the Lord. It didn't cause me to doubt the Lord more. Mighty Savior, but I don't, I don't trust you. Lifted high, raised forever, Jesus Christ. You, you defeated the grave, but I can't trust you. In fact, this song is dragging me down. No, that's not how it works. So we stand together and we sing and we praise the Lord. Now, Abram could have used that. He could have used some people around him that built his faith because he had Sarai and Lot. That was not a good, good group to be hanging with. Sarai struggled in her faith, as we'll see this morning. Lot chose to go towards Sodom. He kept getting closer and closer until he was ingrained in Sodom. So, so Abram didn't have strong people around him, but that really shouldn't have mattered because the voice of the Lord was so clear and so prominent that his faith never should have wavered. And it really didn't, except for one moment that we're going to study this morning that, that literally 
has eternal and historical implications. Now, we got a couple passages to read this morning. Um, so write some things down. Look at some, write some passages down. You can study them this week. Um, always fill in the gaps if you need something to study uh, in your Bible this week and you don't have a, a regular routine. Um, take what we study on Sunday morning and then go back to the text and kind of develop it. So a couple passages. Let's start in chapter 15 and verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my home is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look outside toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed the Lord, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Now we saw last week, back in chapter 12, that the Lord had appeared to Abram, or let me call him Abraham because it's easier, because his name's going to get changed in a minute. The Lord had appeared to Abraham, and he had given him an unconditional covenant. An unconditional covenant is where God makes a promise, and it's not dependent on what we do. A conditional covenant is, if you will do this, then I will do that. But an unconditional covenant says, I'm just going to do it, whether you like it or not, or whether you obey or not. This is what I'm going to do. So back in chapter 12, if you want to look back, back a page, we looked at it last week. God said, I'm going to establish a covenant with you, and I'm going to establish a great nation out of you. And that great nation will be given a specific land, a specific piece of property that is bigger than present-day Israel. That will be your land for my people, and I will be your God, and I will bless you. Abraham, you don't have to do anything. This is not dependent on you. This is dependent on me. I'm making this promise. I'm making this covenant. This is what is going to happen. And Abraham believed the Lord uh, initially when God gives this word. And then God reaffirms it in chapter 13. And Abraham believes him again. So as we saw, he traveled a thousand miles from where he was by foot to the land of Canaan. And he prepared his heart. Now, when he's been in Canaan, which is Israel now, if you know your geography, and if you don't, learn some geography, because if you look at Israel, you see it's this tiny little nation about the size of New Jersey, and it's surrounded by 22 Arab states. So Israel, this nation that God has given to this people, Abraham goes to Canaan, and he lives there for a year. And God appears to him again, what we just read, chapter 15, and he gives more specificity. Now, Abraham wonders, okay, Lord, you say you're going you're gonna to bless me and your reward's going to be great. Well, I don't have a child. As you know, my wife and I can't have children, and my designated heir is Eleazar of Damascus. So I'm just kind of planning that that's the one that, that the promise is going to come through because Sarah can't have kids. And in verse 4, the Lord deliberately, uh, definitively answers him and says, no, that's not the way it's going to work. Your son, 
the son of the promise, the son of this unconditional covenant I'm making for you, your son will come from your own body, and that child will be the heir, and he will be the son of the covenant. Now, it would be a natural assumption that if God appeared to me today and said, you're going to have another child, that that child would be with my wife. There's no reason to believe, there's no reason to conclude from the text, God doesn't say, well, obviously Sarah can't have kids, so we're going to have to find another way to do it. There's nothing in the text where God says, because of the obstacle of her being barren, I'm going to have to go a different way. So when he says, the son's going to come from you, it's going to be out of your body, the the natural conclusion is that he's going to have a child with Sarah. Now that's important to notice because when we get to verse 6, it says that Abraham had strong faith in the Lord and that the word of the Lord that he believed in was counted to him for righteousness. This is the, the Old Testament statement of salvation. Jesus obviously hasn't come yet. There's no cross. There's no empty tomb. There's no perfect sacrifice for sins. There's no understanding yet of the Son of God coming to die. So God looked at people's faith and he said, do you trust me? Do you trust me to save you? Do you have an understanding of what it is to have a blood sacrifice and to have a payment for sin because all men are sinners? And there has to be a payment for sin because if there's no payment for sin, we're destined to hell. So in the Old Testament, God would look into the heart because the law was insufficient to save, not because the law is insufficient, but because we're insufficient. Nobody could fulfill it. Nobody could obey it to the letter. That's why Christ has to come and say, I fulfilled the law to the letter, and now I can go to the cross as the perfect sacrifice for sin. So if you look back at verse 6, it says, Abraham, Abraham believed, God looked at his heart, and where he saw faith, it was counted as righteousness. Now it's clear here that Uh, Abraham listened to the Lord, that Abraham believed the promise. And we see him affirm that in multiple ways. God counted his faith as righteousness. Abraham then makes a sacrifice to the Lord in worship. And then as you move farther on down to verse 12, God gives him a view of the future. He gives him a dream. And he says, it's not all going to be peaches and cream here. There are going to be hardships. The people are going to be taken into captivity for 400 years. That's when Israel goes to Egypt. And then again at the end of chapter 15, we see that he restates the covenant with with Abraham. So again, God comes back and says, no matter what's going to happen, I'm still going to keep my word. Now, why do I take time to establish that? It's important to understand what happens in chapter 15 because by the time we get to the start of chapter 16, which is really a very pivotal passage here in the book of Genesis, we can be absolutely confident that Abraham's faith is very profound. And it's a reminder here that we need to always take God at his word. We need to take God at his word, exactly what he says he will do, and we need to take him at his word as he directs us, and we need to understand that he expects us to trust. Our faith should not waver in the Lord because it has no reason to waver. 
There's nothing in God's word that elicits uh, questions or doubt. And when his spirit speak to us, as we, as we studied a couple weeks ago, and, and as we understand how he is fulfilling his word in our lives, it gives us that extra confirmation that what we trust in is logical and it's right. That's where Abraham is at the end of chapter 15. So just to recap, so we have it clear. At the start of chapter 16, he's been given a covenant by the Lord. He's walked the land that God's promised. He's been given specifics about the covenant. And he's been told that the child will be his. And God has affirmed the covenant at least three times. Okay? Now, chapter 16, verse 1. Now, Sarai, his wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid, because, uh, excuse me, perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done by me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now, nine years have passed, according to the text, since Abram was promised what he's promised at the end of chapter 15. Between chapter 15 and chapter 16, there's a nine-year break. And during that time that's elapsed of them being in Canaan, it, we can pretty easily conclude what's going on in Sarah's heart. That she feels really hopeless. That, that what God has promised and what is actually playing out is not sitting well with her. And, and she gets so frustrated and so much full of angst that by verse 2 of chapter 16, she, she says to herself, the situation's not going to change. And she starts to formulate a plan of how Abraham can have a child with her Egyptian maid, Hagar. Now really infuse yourself for a second. Really get the, the emotion of this moment. What is, what, what is Sarah saying in the tent day after day, month after month, year after year? Now, you're sure God was specific, right? You're, you're sure God said that he was going to fulfill this covenant? You sure he said that, that, that it was going to be from you? Well, you know what? Abraham, I'm sick and tired of waiting. God hasn't given us a child. God, God is not fulfilling his word here. And she starts to get full of disappointment and, and, and sorrow and impatience and anger. And, and, and here's the problem. Those words are never characteristic of faith. Impatience, anger, hostility, frustration, discouragement, uh, sorrow, self-pity. Those words never are aligned with the concept of faith. 
And when our heart and mind gets full of that kind of self-focus and that emotional turmoil because it hasn't gone the way we think or, or we planned, it starts to stifle our faith and it starts to choke off its growth. And when we give it latitude, it will become more bold and more loud. And it will fester in our hearts. And we'll get ourselves all worked up. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, we'll, we'll be in crisis and in turmoil. And here's what happens when we get to that place. We make faithless decisions. Sarah is at her wit's end. She's old. She hasn't been able to have kids, which was the honor of a woman back then. She, she feels frustrated. She's heard this covenant. She, she's not seeing the covenant fulfilled. And day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, she's griping and getting built up and getting frustrated. And it's all getting pent up in her heart. And finally, one day, she says, I've had enough. I'm sick of waiting. Abraham, we need a different plan. And as she says this, she gives him poor counsel, and Abraham should have recognized it. He should have known this was not right, but he's so worn down, and this is no excuse, he's so worn down by her sadness that maybe his faith wanes a little bit too. And when he hears the plan that she lays out, he says, okay. Look back at verse 3 for a minute because it's a very tragic verse. It says, Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. What a contrast to chapter 12 and chapter 13 and chapter 14 and chapter 15, where Abraham had listened to the voice of the Lord and he believed God at his word, even though he couldn't understand it. Now, instead of listening to the voice of the Lord and reminding himself of the repetitive promises of God, where God has affirmed it over and over and over, it will happen according to my word. I will give you a land and a nation and I'll bless you and I'll be your God. And Abraham, trust me because this is going to happen. Instead of that, Abraham deviates from his faith and he listens to somebody whose faith has no confidence. And look at the details of her plan because she's very bitter at this point. Notice, first of all, that she says, the Lord has prevented me from having children. The word there is interesting in the Hebrew. It means to restrain and withhold. In other words, what she's saying is, God has intentionally prevented me from having kids. This is not accidental. This is a vendetta that God has against me. He has restrained me. He has withheld children from me. And that statement carries a very strong undercurrent of bitterness and animosity and resentment toward the Lord because now she blames him for her pain and she refuses to believe that anything else can happen. So that's the first problem. The second problem is she says, perhaps I will obtain children by Hagar, which tells us that she doesn't even believe in herself that this is the right plan. She doesn't believe this is the right solution because if she was confident that this was how God was going to fulfill the covenant, she would say, I'm positive. You're going to have a son, and this is going to be the son of the covenant, and everything's going to go well. But she says, well, why don't you marry Hagar, and perhaps she'll bear me a child. You get the tone? you got to put tone when you read Scripture, right? You can't just read, perhaps she will bear me a child. 
or as they used to do in the old movies where they'd have a British accent because everybody who was Jewish was British too. Hey, uh, Sarah is, is angry. She's bitter. She's coarse. She, she's frustrated. Put some emotion into it. Perhaps she'll bear me a child because clearly this isn't working. Nine years of resentment build up. And now she allows her emotions to trump her faith and to control her decision making. The Lord had said the child would be you and your wife. But she says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm sick of waiting. It's going to be you and Hagar. Third, she chooses an Egyptian to try to establish God's plan for Israel. It is no uh, small detail, okay, in verse 1, she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. And just in case we missed that the first time we read it, the Spirit says again in verse 3, Abraham's wife Sarai took Hagar, tell me the next two words, the Egyptian. She's saying to establish God's plan for his new nation, which will be someday called Israel, to establish God's plan, we need an Egyptian to do it. God's establishing a new covenant to create a new nation of which he'll be their God. And Sarah says, let's pick someone from another nation to fulfill this. There is no way, there is no way, there is no way that's going to be right. God will not bless something when we choose the world over him. God will not bless it when we say, instead of trusting you, I'm going to find an alternative that's opposed to you and say, well, God, I knew what was right. Now I want you to honor that. God says, I don't think so. Hagar, the Egyptian. In the Bible, Egypt always symbolizes hardship. We see it with Abram. He goes down to Egypt before he gets to Canaan. We see it with the Jews. He prophesies that in chapter 15. He says, someday these people are going to go into captivity, and they're going to go to captivity in Egypt. 400 years getting beaten and making uh, bricks uh, with no straw out of the mud, trying to form it in the heat. He says, Egypt's going to be a place of hardship. Even Jesus, when he was a baby, Mary and Joseph had to flee to Egypt to escape Herod. And Jesus spent time in Egypt. Egypt is always a representation of hardship. So there's no way to fulfill a covenant to create a new nation that God's going to be the God of, that God's going to use an Egyptian to do it. And then look at the fourth thought in verse 3. I never, I don't think, seen this before. I don't know why. I've studied this passage many times. But it says that Sarah gave Hagar to Abram as his wife. In other words, she didn't just say, look, I can't have kids. We need a surrogate. I've got a maid. Maybe that'll be the way it works. And, and you know what? Abraham, I, I don't understand why God's done this, but, but let's use her as a surrogate mom. That's not what she's saying. This is not a surrogate, this is a substitute, and there's a big difference. She intends to change the plan of God instead of trusting his voice. And as if that wasn't bad enough, look back at what she says to Abram in verse 5. After Hagar gets pregnant and she gives him uh, her to him as his wife, then she says, may the wrong done by me be upon you. 
this is the height of audacity. Sarah actually blames her impatience and her lack of faith onto Abraham. And then she becomes bitter in her heart that Hagar gets pregnant when she couldn't. And then when Hagar gets pregnant, she starts to resent Sarah. And Sarah starts to resent her. And Abraham's right in the middle. And it's a mess. Everybody's angry with everybody else. Everybody knows that they had deviated from God's plan, that they had resisted the word. Uh, Listen, once our heart stops being sensitive to the Lord, instead of taking responsibility for what we've done, what do we do? We blame it on somebody else. So she comes back all full of spit and fury, and she says, I can't believe it. Everything that I did wrong, now it's on you. It's, It's your fault. Now Hagar hates me, and frankly, I hate her, and she's pregnant, and I'm not, and, and, and I don't know what's going on with you, but I'm telling you, it's your fault. She was the one who didn't wait. She was the one who didn't trust. She was the one who didn't believe in the word of the Lord. And instead of apologizing to Abraham and repenting on her knees before God and saying, God, I didn't trust you. I deviated from the plan. Why did I ignore the conviction of your spirit that I should just keep resting in the Lord and waiting patiently for him? Why did I do that? Instead of doing that, she starts blaming everybody else. And Abraham tries to quell her anger down in verse 6. And he says, you know what? She was under your power. You're the one who made this decision. But you know what? You've, you've got to treat her right. And we know that Sarah's heart's wrong because it says at the end of verse 6 that she treated Hagar harshly. And she caused Hagar to flee. Now there's no question at this point that, that Sarah didn't listen to the voice of the Lord. There's no question. And we'll look at that more in a second. But I want you to see, as we kind of draw this to conclusion, that this didn't just affect her and Abraham. What she did in not trusting the Lord and resisting his word was the start of a hostility that exists even to this day in the Middle East. What we are seeing, and we've talked about this before, let me emphasize it again. What we are seeing in terms of the conflict in the Middle East between the Jews and the Arabs, traces back to Genesis chapter 16. It's the conflict and the animosity that exists between Sarah and Hagar, and then between their children, Isaac and Ishmael, and it will not be relieved, no matter what anybody says, no matter what Antichrist lies about, it will not be relieved until the Battle of Armageddon. When Jesus stands in Jerusalem and reigns for a thousand years, that's when the conflict created in Genesis chapter 16 will end. Now, it's hard to believe that one decision could have that much impact, but that's the case here. Sarah's, unf- uh, Sarah's, Sarah's faithlessness, Abraham's compromise, Hagar's animosity and hostility sets all of this up. And when we look at chapter 17 and verse 7, the fact that God establishes the covenant through Isaac and not through Ishmael is what drives the Arabs crazy today because they believe that they earned the birthright to the land, but God has given it to the Jews. And that conflict over Israel, over Palestine, as they want to call it, over Jerusalem, over the fact that everybody hates Israel, 
all of that roots itself back in chapter 16. Because the Arabs are not only insecure about their position, they're also completely irritated by it. Because Abraham went to Hagar and had a son, and they say, well, that's the father of the Arab nation. He's the one that the promise should be fulfilled by, but that wasn't God's plan. God says, you deviated from my plan and my covenant. I'm going to have, a ch- you have a child with Sarah, your wife. His name's going to be Isaac, and that's the son of the covenant. And because of the hostility between Hagar and Sarah, now it's created this situation. And that's especially exacerbated because Isaac's birth is not right after Ishmael's. There's a 13-year gap between the start of chapter 16 and the start of chapter 17. There's 14 years that, from, from the start to the finish. So Ishmael's 13 when the next word of the Lord comes to Abraham in chapter 17. And the Lord comes back and says, all right, let me say it again. I'm making a covenant with you, and I'm going to give you a land and a nation, and I'm going to bless you. See, there's been 13 years of agony and 13 years of complete resentment for Sarah. Keep that in mind for a minute. And it shows the incredible grace of God that he would come back and affirm the covenant with Abraham and Sarah, even after they usurped his plan. But that's who the Lord is. Aren't you glad this morning for the mercy and forgiveness and patience of God? I'm so grateful for it, because without it, we'd be nothing. He has every reason to give up on us. He has every reason to give up on Abraham and Sarah, but he doesn't. But here's the thing that we're going to conclude with. Just because God was gracious doesn't mean there wasn't a cost. Because Abraham and Sarah refused to trust in the Lord, there was a cost that they had to deal with. Anytime we choose the other voice, anytime we choose the voice that isn't the word of the Lord, there's going to be a price. We can't assume that we can resist God's leading or, or simply rationalize and justify some kind of an alternative and expect God to bless it. He is so gracious and so faithful and so good to help us and guide us and protect us from sin and to care for our needs and to lead us in the path of righteousness. That that any other option than that is foolish. So when we're obstinate or we're recalcitrant or or we refuse to, to trust, he says, all right, fine, I will allow you to experience the cost of your lack of trust. And for Abraham and Sarah, there were four costs. And we're going to go through them in a minute. Then we'll pray. But before we go through them, I want you to see something that struck me so much as I studied this. As you write these things down, the costs of what happened from their lack of faith, I want you to notice just how gentle the hand of the Lord is. Even as he allows them to go through this, notice how God's discipline could have been so much more harsh, especially because God knew the lasting conflict that would come out of this decision. But but notice that our Lord is slow to anger and rich in mercy and rich in love. Aren't you glad for that this morning? I'm so glad this week that God was slow to anger with me. I'm so glad this morning that God was rich in mercy And rich in love because I need it so much.
It's so easy to hear that other voice that speaks doubt and fear and hesitation and resistance. But God says, rest in me and wait patiently for me. Trust in the Lord and do good. Because when we don't, we experience the cost. Look at what Abraham and Sarah went through. Start in chapter 17, verse 1. The first cost was that there was a delay in the fulfillment of the promise. God had affirmed it three times, chapter 12, chapter 15, uh, 14, chapter 15. But now, between chapter 16 and chapter 17, there is delay in the fulfillment of the promise. We see the last verse of chapter 16. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore, uh, birthed Ishmael to him. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now when Sarah, uh, when, excuse me, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. 99 minus 86 is class 13. Good. We all passed math class. 13 years pass before the Lord returns and says, all right, I'm going to restate my promise. Now, was that delay a, a, a discipline for Sarah's lack of faith? Was it a statement by the Lord that you need to trust me? Whatever the case is, they had a long time to think about not trusting. They both knew that they had done the wrong thing. So what were they thinking about during those 13 years? Did they, did they wonder to themselves whether the Lord had turned away, whether he had taken the promise away? They knew he can't break his covenant, and it had been affirmed three times already. Now God comes back and he says, I'm going to affirm it a fourth time. But you've had to experience the agonizing delay caused by your impatience. When we're impatient, Usually it means we're going to have to wait longer. And they're impatient. They supersede the will of God. And God says, fine. The cost of their impatience is you're going to have to wait longer. It's like when I'm in the grocery store and I'm looking for the short lane. Right? You ever experienced this? And, and you go to the short lane you're like, great. And the person decides to have 46 items and then wait to write their check. And they can't find a pen. And oh, I've got some coupons. And you're going, if I had just stayed in that lane, there are 19 people that have gone through while I waited for this person. How many have experienced that in the grocery store? Yeah. I'm the guy behind you that's... <sighs> Usually the irony of impatience is you're just going to have to wait longer than you would have if you hadn't been impatient. Second, would you see in chapter 17 and verses 5 and 15 that he changes their names? Abram becomes Abraham. The word means the father of a multitude. So that fits. Sarai becomes Sarah, which means noble woman, which I think is a touch ironic there. This is not just a cosmetic change. All right, we're in a new stage of life, so let's, let's put on new clothes and, and regroup a little bit. This is a spiritual principle. God is saying, you need to change. I'm going to make you a new creation. Sound familiar? 
and, and I'm willing to put the past aside in order to use you in the future, but you've got to embrace the change. It's emblematic of salvation. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away, behold, all things become new. My name changes to become the name of Christ, a Christian. And we're expected that we will embrace that and live differently because of it. When we take the name of Christ, we can't then continue to live as the old man. We have to live as the new man. Otherwise, it's a mockery to God's grace. So he says, you're not Abram anymore. You're Abraham, the father of a multitude. And Sarai, you're going to become Sarah. You're going to become a noble woman. I'm going to make that happen. But you have to live as new people now. And then the third thing, chapter 17, verse 10, there was a personal price. Part of the cost was a personal price. God establishes the covenant of circumcision. Our lack of faith, listen now, always produces some measure of pain. Lack of faith always produces some measure of pain, whether it's personal or relational or physical or emotional. The Lord allows discipline in our lives because he wants us to see just how much we need to trust him completely. And when we don't, he reminds us of how much we need him. That's not harsh or cruel. It's loving. So there's a personal pain here. Abraham has to be the first one to endure the cost and the sacrifice of circumcision, which, not to get complicated this morning, it is a sign of the covenant. It's the shedding of blood. It's the fact that God's building a great nation through Abraham's descendants. And Abraham would never forget the result of relying on himself instead of relying on the Lord. And in case we think that's too harsh and that God is cruel at this point, we need to read four more verses and then we're going to pray. Look at chapter 17, verse 17. God comes back, verse 15 says, Sarah's gonna, Sarah is going to be Sarah and I'll bless her. Wow, God is so gracious, is he not? I'll bless her and I'll give you a son by her, then I'll bless him. And he shall be, she will be the mother of the nations, king of the peoples, will come from her. Verse 17, then Abraham praised the Lord and fell on his face and worshiped God. Is that what it says? Then Abraham fell on his face and did what? Tell me. He laughed. And he said in his heart, will a child be born to a man a hundred years old? And will Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? <laughs> He's so sarcastic and derisive at this point. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. I already said that a second ago. And you'll call his name Isaac. And I'll establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Now go over to chapter 18, verse 12. Because three men, one of them being the son of God, appear to them in the desert, and they have a conversation with Abraham, and Sarah's listening from the tent. They say, where is Sarah? Verse 9 says she's in the tent. He said, I'll surely return to you a year from now, and by that time Sarah will have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which behind him, and Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age, and Sarah was past childbearing. Verse 12, and Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I've become old, shall I have pleasure? And my Lord bring 
a child to me? The first cost was there was a delay. The second cost is they had to change. The third cost is there was pain. The fourth cost is actually a gracious cost. They were given a constant reminder to trust the Lord. When God tells Abraham the plan, Abraham literally falls on his face laughing and says, no way that's happening. In case you haven't noticed, I'm 100 years old. We're, we're well past the time of having kids. And then when Sarah hears that she's going to have a child within a year, she laughs to herself and basically says the same thing that Abraham did. They both laughed, listen now, even though four times the voice of the Lord had said, I am going to fulfill my promise this way. Sarah will be the mom, Abraham will be the dad, Isaac will be the son, and Isaac will be the son of the covenant. There's no doubt whatsoever. There's no mention mention of other options there's there's no alternative this is what's going to happen so it is stunning that when they both hear it for the fourth time that they have learned nothing in 13 years of waiting and they both laugh in disbelief so here's the bottom line we're done it is no coincidence that when the Lord fulfills his promise, because of course he's going to, right? That he says, here's the name of your child. I'm not going to let you go through the baby name book. I'm giving you the name. The name's Isaac. You know what Isaac means? Laughter. God says, you're going to have a child. And the child's name is going to be laughter. So every time you call his name, and every time you see his face, you will be reminded that you should have trusted me. You'll be reminded that you laughed at my word instead of living in the joy of my faithfulness. And then look at what God tells him in verse 14, and you can close your Bible. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? What are you dealing with this morning? What, what area of your life needs that truth? What internally are you laughing about saying, there's no way. There is just no way. I am not going to trust the Lord. I, I, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to listen to a lot of other voices. I'm going to try to rationalize on my own. I'm going to try to figure it out. But I'm telling you right now, I, I don't see it. I don't see how God's going to do it. it. It can't happen. You know, and I'm frustrated. It's been a long delay. I'm getting impatient. I, I'm really kind of frustrated. And, and you know what? I'm done. There may be areas of your life this morning, maybe one area of your life this morning, where you're kind of saying that. You're not saying it out loud. You're not telling anybody else. You're not admitting it to the Lord. But, but basically, you've come to the conclusion that you're done trusting God in that. And I want to tell you this morning, that's the laughter of Abraham and Sarah. And I want to tell you, you're going to deal with a cost if you don't trust the Lord for this. God was willing 
and did fulfill his promise. So we have to ask ourselves, which voice am I listening to? Am I listening to the voice of the Lord or am I listening to somebody else's voice? Am I relying on my own wisdom and my own logic like Sarah did or am I relying on the word of the Lord and the leading of his spirit? Everything we will face this week is too difficult for us, but nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Do you believe that? Are we living that by faith? Because that's what God calls us to do.